Congratulations to the Joplin Globe on the new podcast adventure. Travel Inspirations is delighted to welcome this new initiative to bring news to the four-state community. Discover your next adventure on our website, travelinspirations.travel. I'm Joe Hadsell, and welcome to In Case You Missed It, our new weekly catch-up podcast from the Joplin Globe. Sponsored by Travel Inspirations, we'll recap the biggest local news stories from the past week. This week, we'll also talk with author Nadine Strawson, who spoke at Thomas Jefferson Independent Day School last week, the author of Hate, Why We Should Resist It with Free Speech, Not Censorship. Strosen is a lawyer and former president of the ACLU. She'll talk to us about free speech, Missouri's open records law, and free speech in the United States. And now, in case you missed it, for March 10th, 2019. Eleven people applied for an open seat on the Joplin City Council. The applicants are Mike Siebert, Keenan Cortez, Charles Koppel, Tom Rogers, Troy Canast, Leonard Miller, Matthew Robertson, Sarah Hinkle, William Goodwin, Achala Tawari Pandey, and Rocky Biggers. The seat was vacated in February by Jim West, who resigned the post for personal reasons. There's been no explanation offered for why West left the post more than a year ahead of his term's expiration. The council plans to make the appointment at its meeting on Monday, March 18th. On Wednesday, a Kansas District Court judge ordered the state to return $48 million to Gene Bicknell, a longtime Pizza Hut franchisee, entrepreneur, and supporter of Pittsburgh State University. Bicknell, formerly a Pittsburgh resident who once owned more Pizza Hut restaurants than any other franchisee in the country, sued the state of Kansas in 2017 as part of a long-running dispute over a $42 million tax bill stemming from the sale of hundreds of franchises he owned. Kansas Senior District Court Judge Richard Smith decided in Bicknell's favor, ruling that he was a resident of Florida in 2005 and 2006 when his company, NPC International, was sold in 2006. Also on Wednesday, the Missouri Highways and Transportation Commission approved the expected cost and timeline to complete the last five miles of the Interstate 49 Missouri-Arkansas connector, commonly known as the Bella Vista Bypass. The total cost for the project is an estimated $47.8 million, with completion slated for the summer of 2022. The U.S. Department of Transportation previously approved a $25 million grant to fund Missouri's five-mile stretch of the bypass. Officials said the grant, coupled with more than $23 million in state and federal funds that the Missouri Department of Transportation has already earmarked for the work, should cover the entire cost of Missouri's share. A Jasper County jury on Wednesday found 30-year-old Blaine Downham guilty of all four counts that he was facing, first-degree child molestation, first-degree statutory rape, unlawful possession of a firearm, and resisting arrest. Downham was accused of molesting and raping a 10-year-old girl a year ago in a Joplin motel. Circuit Judge Dean Dangelson set Downham's sentencing hearing for April 22nd. Downham faces from five years to life on the statutory rape count, from 10 to 30 years, or up to life on the child molestation count, up to seven years on the firearm count, and up to four years for resisting arrest. Also on Wednesday, the Oklahoma Senate effectively killed three key pieces of legislation intended to boost worker pay for the first time in a decade. 
Senator George Young, a Democrat from Oklahoma City, said he was disappointed that his measure, increasing wages from $7.25 to $10.50, failed to get even a committee hearing in the Republican-controlled Senate. The effort marked the fourth time in as many years that Young has filed legislation seeking to boost the minimum wage. Despite a lot of public support, the measure ultimately faced resistance from Senate leadership, which led to its downfall, he said. The U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics reported that while 901,000 Oklahoma workers received hourly wages in 2017, about 28,000 were paid minimum wage, or less. And we'll be right back with author Nadine Strawson. Travel Inspirations is a full-service travel agency in the four states with over 20 years of experience in planning group tours, company incentives, and leisure cruises. Joe, Nancy, and Wendy are eager to customize itineraries to make travel dreams come true. Travel Inspirations is exceeding your expectations and designing your vacation. Follow them on Facebook at Travel Inspirations Carthage or visit them online at travelinspirations.travel or call 417-526-4500. Welcome back to In Case You Missed It. Today in Missouri begins Sunshine Week, an annual awareness event that spotlights the Missouri Sunshine Law, the Open Records Act in the state. The law walks hand-in-hand with the freedom of speech guaranteed in the First Amendment. Thanks to the more than two-thirds margin of victory for Amendment 1 in November, the sun has shined more brightly than usual on the Sunshine Law, but some lawmakers seek to draw the shades by reversing provisions of that November amendment. Nadine Strassman last week was the featured speaker in the McCollum Distinguished Speaker Series at Thomas Jefferson Independent Day School. Strassen, who was president of the American Civil Liberties Union from 1991 to 2008, spoke to students of the upper school Thursday afternoon and to school patrons that evening. She also spoke with us about her book, Hate, Why We Should Resist It with Free Speech, Not Censorship, as well as how social networks have changed our ability to speak and why free speech is an issue both political parties can get behind. Nadine, thanks for joining us today. How have you uh, liked Joplin so far? I've had such a great time, Joe. Thank you so much for uh, taking your time to interview me. I had a wonderful talk at uh, TAMCO and a wonderful opportunity to speak to the upper school here at the Thomas Jefferson Independent Day School. And now I get to talk to you, so it's a great day. I, yeah, the, the great thing about talking to me is that it won't take very long. So, <laughs> but the, in talking to the students, uh, I got a chance to listen to uh, the end of your speech, and uh, it uh, it relieved me to see uh, everybody raise their hands when they, uh, you know, on the question of if a social network deletes your post, is that an invasion of censorship? It felt pretty good to see all those kids say, no, it's not. They had learned a lesson. I suspect they didn't know that before because I can tell you the vast majority of adults, including many lawyers, do not know that the Constitution, including the First Amendment, free speech, and free press guarantees, only protects us against government action, government violation. So we have absolutely no First Amendment free speech rights against any private sector entities, whether it's a private university, a private school, or a private media company. To the contrary, all of those institutions have their 
own First Amendment rights. So just as your fine newspaper has an editorial prerogative to not publish somebody uh, or to not publish an article on a certain topic, social media can set their own standards about what they will allow to be posted and what posts and posters they will not allow to use their platform. It seems like social media has been a powerful tool for enabling people to speak and use those free speech rights that they have. Seems like it complicates things. Uh, How have you found social media to affect the idea of freedom of speech as we know it or our right to express it? Social media along with traditional media are just that, media or means of communication. By themselves, they are neutral. The content, and whether it's positive or negative, the content of communications is up to those of us who are using those media. Many of us do so for great good. I have to say it's just been a treasure trove of information and communications and advocacy for what I consider to be the most important values, human rights and civil liberties. On the other hand, other people with values that I despise are equally able to avail themselves of this means of communication because it is so powerful and so pervasive and so cheap namely pretty much free to get access to everything is magnified a trillion fold so the good that is communicated is infinitely greater but the harm that's communicated is also infinitely greater how much of that led to the decision to write your book that came out in uh, may of last year I started writing the book and actually doing the research for the book and the book proposal much earlier. It's a long process these days between the idea and the publication. And quite frankly, it was developments in this very state that set me down that path. Uh, Ferguson, Missouri, and the uprest uh, that occurred afterwards, including on the campus at Mizzou, including protests against racial injustice, including uh, attacks on journalists, including student journalists, including efforts to punish and suppress hateful or harmful speech. Uh, To my horror, the campus police there actually issued a campus-wide directive that said any hurtful or harmful speech should be reported to us, to the police. And I thought, my goodness, this and this began a nationwide pattern of, on the one hand, really positive development of students becoming activists in a way that they hadn't for 
a couple decades uh, in support of human rights and values that I hold dear. But on the other hand, attacking free speech and calling for censorship, which I found to be very frightening. Clearly, nobody had done a sufficiently persuasive job of convincing the students what I believe to be absolutely true, that you cannot meaningfully advance racial justice or social justice or any cause without having a robust free speech that extends even to speech that you might consider to be hateful. And that's the catch there. How do we decide what is hateful? How do we decide what is dangerous? And it seems like in our society today, it's very easy to invoke those words, especially when it's on when it's on a social network. It's as easy as hitting the report button. Um, what at the risk of spoiling too much of what's in the book? What's the biggest thing that people should take responsibility for in exercising that right? People have a responsibility to understand just the basics about First Amendment law, what is protected and what is not protected, because I think that that law is so commonsensical and draws exactly the right distinction between speech that should be protected and speech that should be punished, that if people understood what the law is, they would be much more supportive of it. So our law does allow much hateful speech to be punished if, in the particular facts and circumstances, that speech directly causes certain serious, specific, imminent harm, such as, you know, intending to instill a fear in people. We call this a, a true threat. A, the speaker is targeting uh, expression at a small group of people, and they reasonably feel by an object, objective standard that they are going to be subject to violence. That's already punishable. If somebody intentionally incites imminent violence, and the violence is likely to happen, that's already punishable. And by the way, we have a concept called hate crime uh, in virtually every state, certainly including this one at the national level of government, that if there is something that is independently a crime, completely independent of ideas or expression, let's say an assault on a person or vandalism against a property, if that, if the victim of that crime is intentionally singled out for a discriminatory reason, you know, we're going to vandalize that, that, that synagogue or that mosque because we're anti-Semitic or anti-Islamophobic uh, you know, or if we're going to assault that person because the person is gay and we're homophobic. That is considered a more serious crime. It's often called a hate crime or a bias crime uh, on the theory that it does more harm to the individual and to the group to which the individual belongs and to the larger society. So, and I could give you other examples where the speech really is connected directly to serious harm, it's already punishable. If people understood that, I think they wouldn't call for um, changing our laws and giving the government more power yeah. to suppress hate speech. Mm. Maybe it's because uh, as the Globe's uh, social media director, I spend way too much time on Facebook. But uh, a phenomenon I observe often is political issues kind of getting talking points. If you feel 
uh, toward one end of the spectrum, then you have certain things to say. That means free speech issues sometimes take on a Republican versus Democrat uh, as, as not only as somebody who authored your book, but as somebody who worked for the ACLU for and was the president for many years. I imagine you have a lot of experience in explaining to both sides how liberties are important. How do you explain that free speech is an issue that both sides need to care about. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Joe. Because we have to understand that we have a rule of law. And if government is given power to punish speech because the idea is hated, then no idea is safe, right? What is hated at one time in one community is going to be beloved at another time in another community. The ACLU's most famous or infamous case came from 1977 to 78 when we came to the defense of the free speech rights of a group of neo-Nazis to demonstrate in Skokie, Illinois, a town that had a large Jewish population, many of whom were Holocaust survivors, their ideas were completely antithetical to our own civil libertarian ideas of equality and dignity uh, for racial and religious and ethnic minorities. But we understood that what was at stake was an underlying neutral principle that government could not suppress speech merely because its ideas were hated and generally feared and seen as offensive and insulting. And in our brief, we gave an example from less than 10 years earlier in the very same state, Cicero, Illinois, a very racially segregated community, which was deeply opposed to the civil rights movement. And those were the very same arguments that the government officials in that community raised in saying the Martin Luther King movement should not be allowed to have a peaceful demonstration in Cicero. Today, uh, you hear cries for censoring as hate speech everything from Black Lives Matter speech to Blue Lives Matter speech to All Lives Matter. Many college campuses have said that even the term free speech should be punished as hate speech. I was on a campus just uh, a day and a half ago, where and this is not the only one, where signs uh, proclaiming free speech were torn down and vandalized. Unfortunately, because there have been so many instances on the predominantly liberal college campuses where conservative speakers have had to wave the banner of free speech, that too many students have associated free speech with conservative ideas. And I, conservative ideas are fine, but your point is the correct one, that the concept of free speech is ideologically neutral. It is equally essential for the freedom to express any idea, particularly any idea that is unpopular or a dissident idea, a dissenting idea in the particular community at that particular time. And there have been many instances on college campuses uh, where liberal ideas have been censored. They haven't gotten as much play in the press, interestingly enough, because it has been mostly 
conservative media outlets that have made this a big issue. And I join with some of my left of center friends in deploring that the liberal media have really ceded that issue to the conservatives. You don't hear um, CNN and MSNBC call, standing up for free speech the way you do uh, on the other end. So thank you for, for standing up, you, you know, using your free, free press rights to do this. Okay. Uh, next week in Missouri is Sunshine Week. This mm. is a celebration and awareness of Missouri's open records laws. Uh, this will happen at a time when legislators are considering removing some of the provisions that more than two-thirds of voters passed in the amendment called uh, the Clean Missouri Amendment. Is the pursuit of open records considered a free speech issue? If not, how closely tied is the pursuit of open records to free speech? Open records is intimately tied to, and I would say an essential aspect of freedom of speech, which has always been understood as being especially important in a democratic republic where we, the people, hold sovereign power, including the three opening words in our cherished constitution. And as the framers and Supreme Court justices and everybody who's thought about it has said, how can we responsibly exercise those sovereign powers unless we have access to information uh, about the policies that are being adopted or considered by those we elect to be accountable to us. How can we hold them accountable if we don't have information about what they are doing? And that's it for this week's episode of In Case You Missed It, sponsored by Travel Inspirations. Special thanks to Nadine Strassman and Thomas Jefferson School, who accommodated my very short notice interview request. All of the stories you heard and much more can be found in the pages of the Joplin Globe, and even more can be found on our website, joplinglobe.com. We also have an app for smartphones and tablets that you can find in the Apple Store or on Google Play. Whether you prefer seeing digital copies of our print edition or digital copies of our stories, both versions will be at your fingertips. Thanks for joining us this week. I'm Joe Hadsel, and we'll see you next time. Thank you to the Joplin Globe for reviewing the four state highlights and news this week. To discover adventurous highlights around the world, find Travel Inspirations Carthage on Facebook or search our website, travelinspirations.travel. We look forward to exceeding your expectations.